Isaiah said that great peace, perfect peace rather, perfect peace, it comes to those who keep their mind on him. And uh, it's interesting in the Hebrew language, um, when they want to put emphasis on something, um, the way they do it is simply repeat the same Hebrew word. And in this instance, what is there is simply peace, peace. Hallelujah. Whatever your distress, whatever your challenge, whatever the complexities, the complications of life, if you'll focus on Him, He has a perfect peace. New Testament talks about a peace that passes all understanding. And He has that sort of peace for you. It's good to be in Sewanee. It's good to be in Gwinnett County. It's good to be in branches. It's good to be in your church today. And uh, as uh, let me introduce myself. Lane calls me dad, but I'm Carlton Coon, and um, he's the I'm the senior, I think. And uh, to the far right over here is my wife, Norma. And um, it is very good to be here. We are sanctified proud of our children. And uh, Lane and Shelley are doing a uh, good job planting a church. And I spent several years working with those who were church planters. And uh, one of the things that is easily neglected by some people is that a church start is a baby church. A baby, the baby back there in arms, has all of the biological, has all of the normal traits of an adult. Just not there yet. It's on the way. Hallelujah. And your church is on the way. It's good to be with them, and it's good to be with the holy children. And that has been my term for Wyatt and his cousin, Caden. And now we've added Elsie Adara, the princess of the bunch, and uh, they're always fun, and we are always tired after we hang out with them for a while. Any grandparents here that can relate to that, or any parents who can relate to that, uh, and uh, simply the reality, praise the Lord, and um, I have a vision for you. It doesn't necessarily mean it's God's vision. And um, I know that Lane has a vision for you and for the church. And uh, those are two different things. The vision for a church is a collective body. But a vision for individuals is what helps individuals become something more than what they are when they come to God. And uh, he and I visit about church almost every Sunday afternoon. And um, I usually have more negative things to say about our situation than he has to say about you folks. Matter of fact, I don't think he's ever said much negative about you folks. He has a vision for what you will become and that your church will send out pastors 
and missionaries and will raise up daughter churches all across uh, Atlanta. And that's an exciting thing. Praise the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing. And I have a vision, as he does, for there coming a time when Branches has its own church property. And uh, that'll be a neat thing. And uh, you're in a much better situation than a lot of church plants where that uh, every Sunday uh, the pastor and three or four other folks have to come and set chairs up and sound equipment and all the rest. But um, as you grow, you're going to need space. And uh, so I encourage you to buy into that vision. And the way we buy into that vision, number one, is praying about it. And secondly, we give to it. And uh, I encourage you to be supportive of that vision. I encourage you in your, in your offering and in your tithe. Those are two different things. Offering is our free will gift. You can give 85% of whatever and call it an offering. But tithing was a unique thing that God used to raise up support for his workers. And uh, there's going to come a time when your church is going to need a youth pastor. Well, guess where the money comes from to pay the youth pastor's salary? It comes from tithing and a secretary and all that other stuff that happens with growing churches. So uh, honor God with your tithing, and God will honor you. He will bless. Read Malachi 3, 8 through 10. He will open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't contain. Hallelujah. You can't outdo God. He will bless you. He will bless you. He will bless you. Lane mentioned the book, Light in a Dark Place. I would much prefer that someone else had written the book, but uh, I got to live the journey. So, and it uh, didn't seem like much of anybody else wanted to tackle the difficult topic of dealing with depression from a Christian perspective. And uh, so I took it on, and it is selling. Uh, incredibly well. Uh, this past week, our our church is in need of facility as well, and I uh, was visiting a church that is on the market, and I, it's the third time I'd been there, and um, I felt uh, early that morning when I woke up, I felt to take the pastor a copy of Light in a Dark Place, and And uh, so when I gave it to him, he said, thank you. And he didn't really even look at it very much. Went and put it in his car. And and we went on about touring the building with a a, uh, contractor. And um, then as I was preparing to leave, he came running to me. And he said, "Uh, why did you give me this book? He knew I'd written about 20. And... um, I said, well, I felt prompted early this morning. And he said, I am struggling in the depths of depression. And I've been in contact with him regularly since then. And he's talked about uh, the impact that it's making on his life. So I'm thankful that God God uses that kind of thing. And um, again, I would prefer that somebody else would have had the privilege of the experience that prepares to write some things. Glory to God. Are you glad you know Jesus today? Now, I, I'm, I don't preach long, 
and uh, I preach simple. I'll leave the deep stuff to my son. He can tell you about all of those toes on Daniel's idol, and he can tell you who Melchizedek was, and he can um, he can get into that stuff. But I just kind of preach, and and um, so let me let me launch this morning. How many people do you know who would be surprised to see you in church anywhere this morning? Any of you relate to that, that you've got friends and old acquaintances that that uh, man, if they walked in the door just as a visitor, they'd say, "My goodness, yeah, what what governmental program are you in that's requiring you to go to church?" What some of them might might say, we've had that experience where that people have walked in and they've seen one of our worshipers and they've said, "What are you doing in here?" Because they used to do drugs together and hang out together and spend time doing less than wise things. And now one of them is worshiping the Lord, and it just becomes a surprise. And if I were to ask those of you who raised your hands as to why there would be people who were surprised, you would have a ready answer in all likelihood, and it would be an answer that would tell some sordid reality of life that that uh, you have experienced. It could be back in high school or college days or, or maybe as a young adult or maybe even as a more mature adult. But there, there would be something that that person would reflect on, that they would recall, that would tell them or remind them of a past life and of what used to be. I'm going to talk to you this morning about an unexpected worshiper, an unexpected worshiper. Um, one of the profound things about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he enters into a relationship with people who don't seem to have the right pedigree or the right background. They're not very religious. They're not very knowledgeable. But yet God takes an interest in them. It may be that they are deep in sin or in despair. They could be struggling with oppression. They can be addiction in their life. It can well be that there is significant baggage that they have. If, if we were to take 10 or 12 minutes and just have a little testimony service and we ask the people who were up part of this praise team, if we were to ask them to give us four minutes of their backstory today, You'd be surprised at how unchurchy, I don't know that that's a word, but it is this morning, how unchurchy they are. Because if they really told you the ugly, you'd be astounded at the story. But here they are on this Sunday morning, not just as attenders, but they are here as worshipers. And it might well be that they are unexpected worshipers. But this is part of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when Paul 
begins to write to the unusual church in Corinth, which was extremely, extremely ungodly in so many ways, very unrighteous, not particularly godly in many of their decisions. He writes to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and he is recounting to them the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators involved with sexual sin, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate involved in the perverse side of life, nor abusers of themselves or mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunks, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a litany that covers a whole lot of human behavior. But that's not where Paul stops his message. And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. And in this setting on this Sunday morning, such were some of you. That's been yesterday's story. But God has chosen to include you. He has in, He has chosen to invite you. He has chosen to give you opportunity. Listen to me. Never take that privilege for granted. Never allow that opportunity to become something that you take lightly. But every day you need to wake up and say, God, I'm thankful that your grace included me. I'm thankful that your mercy came into my life. I am so glad for the privilege of getting to be part of your church. Such were some of you, but you're washed You're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Can I get an amen this morning? What an incredible story it is. Now, with that as a foundation, I want to introduce you to a somewhat obscure individual from the Old Testament. His name is Obed-Edom. And if you read the Old Testament, you read the books of Samuel and Chronicles, and you're paying particular attention, Obed-Edom's name shows up in connection, as, and it's actually part of a list of people who are involved in significant roles of service in God's work. And uh, there's quite a number of them. I'm just going to give you uh, two of them in 1 Chronicles 15 and 18. And excuse the listing of names here. And with them, their brethren of the second degree, Zechariah, Ben, Jaziel, Shimmer, Ramoth, Jehel, Unai, Eliab, Benaiah, Messiah, Mattathiah, Eliphala, Michniah, and Obed-Edom, and Jael, the porters. The porter was a doorkeeper. It was what David said he would rather be than to dwell in the tents of the ungodly. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Three verses later, another little listing, and now it's about those who play music, and Mattathiah, and Eliphala, and Michnia, and Obed-Edom, and Jael, and Azaziah with harps on the Sheminoth. The Sheminoth 
is a instrument of music that plays the lowest tones available to the human ear. And so now Obed-Edom, he's working as the doorkeeper, and he is now playing in the orchestra for the worshipers of God. So if you track it, if you search it repeatedly, you will see Obed-Edom. In a lot of ways, Pastor, Obed-Edom would have been a leader's dream because he was not just an attender, but he was a worker. He was a participant in all that God had going on. If we were to read further, you would discover that Obed-Edom's children get involved in the same things that their father has been involved in in the past. So Obed-Edom is a man who comes into the picture and he begins to serve the work of God. And then he hands something down to the next generation. And what he hands to the next generation is an attitude of labor, an attitude of participant. They are not simply spectators as to what God is doing, but they become participants in what God is doing. Now all of this happens in what I call a parenthesis in Israelite history. It is a small era of time between the time when the tabernacle was the way that they worshipped. This was traveling worship, the tabernacle of Moses. And then the building of Solomon's temple, was, which was settled worship. But in this era of perhaps a century of time or a bit more, there is a temporary season when the worship would eventually happen in something that is known as the tabernacle of David. Now, for 70 years before there is the establishment of the tabernacle of David, there has basically been no worship in Israel, nothing that is organized, nothing that is structured. Instead, the best representation of God's relationship with the people of Israel was down a long way from the center of Israelite activity. It had been taken in battle by the Philistines and then they had sent it back to Israel and so it had stayed there at at, at the house of Abinadab in the little town of kerjath Jerim that is on the border of the nation of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant several miles, over nine miles away from Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, many of you who know much about the Bible know that it was a holy thing. It was specifically set apart to God. It was important in the history of Israel. And God had given very specific instructions on how that particular Ark of the Covenant should be handled. When David becomes king, he decides that I'm going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the center of Israelite government. So it's going to be the center of worship and it's going to be the center of government. It was a small thing to do. It was nine and three-tenths miles from Kajath Jerim to the city of Jerusalem. And so David, he takes quite a procession of people. He has musicians with him and he has others. He has priests and he has Levites and they go down for quite 
had a parade to come the 9.3 miles from Jerusalem to Jerusalem. They load that holy box, the Ark of the Covenant, on a cart, and they begin to traverse the path headed back toward Jerusalem. And all goes well for almost two-thirds of the trip. And then the cart hits a pothole, or it swerves along the road. And the Ark of the Covenant shakes as though it might fall. And with sudden instinct and without thought, Yuza reaches out and he touches the ark in order to keep it perhaps from falling. Yuza was no priest. And one of the things that God had required was that only the priest would be those who touched the ark. And just as quick as Yuza touches the ark, Yuza falls dead right there in the midst of the parade, in the midst of the procession. God's holy things then or now are not to be taken lightly. So what was a procession of celebration is stunned into sudden silence. The people stand back and David himself, the Bible says, was afraid. And timidity and uncertainty takes hold of David. There he is, one third of the way from Jerusalem and he's almost there but it's not quiet and now fear is driving all the decisions that we make and so searching for a solution David spies nearby a house and when somebody knocks on the door of the house Obed-Edom comes out at Obed-Edom that close house is a place that David chooses and Obed-Edom invites that ark of the Lord into his house the Bible puts it this way in 2 Samuel six ten through 11 that David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but he carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the next chapter is going to recount what David does. He goes to war and he takes care of some other responsibilities. But in those three months and those 90 days, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It's the first mention in the Bible of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom, who would eventually become a porter and a doorkeeper. Obed-Edom, who would eventually be part of the chorus of harps that would play. Obed-Edom, whose children would eventually serve God, even as Obed-Edom had served God. But this is where it begins. God blessed Obed-Edom. We use the word bless and blessing often, but the word blessing is simply a weightiness and significance that comes to someone's life. The historian Josephus says that Obed-Edom went from abject poverty to prosperity in those three months. The rabbis talk of what Obed-Edom's neighbors saw, that there was joy in his family, that every time they saw his family, that their faces were glowing with contentment and satisfaction, that they planted and harvested at a miraculous pace, that what usually took 60 or 90 days to mature only took 10 or 15 days and the harvest time was shortened and the blessing of God was upon them and there was success yes marvelous success in everything that Obed-Edom did for those 90 days financial prosperity came and remarkable 
physical vitality came. Obed-Edom, blessed of God. I'm going to tell you, it's not enough that you hear a word of blessing from me. It's not enough that you hear a word of blessing from your pastor. You need the blessings of God upon your life. And there will be something marvelously added to you if you are blessed of God. Amen. I want to be a blesser of others, but more important than me being able to bless you, it is that I could direct you to the path of blessing where that you can find the blessings of Almighty God for your life. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Success. 90 days later, David comes back to Obed-Edom's house to bring the ark on to Jerusalem. He comes with a great procession again, and he comes with priests to put the ark on their shoulders. He would not make the same mistake of the past. Ninety days, three months of remarkable, astounding blessing. And when they loaded up that ark and they headed for Jerusalem, those three miles, Obed-Edom said, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm not staying out here in the farmhouse. What I have experienced in the last three months, I want to keep in contact with. I want to stay close to. And so he comes and his family comes and he becomes a porter. He becomes a musician. He is a man of the country, but now he becomes a man of the city. The slower pace of rural life is traded for busy streets. He becomes an unexpected worshiper. When others came to visit the tabernacle of David, I have an idea that when they saw him playing that harp or when he, when they walked in and they saw him as the doorkeeper at the house of God, I think they whipped off their glasses and said, what are you doing here? What's happened to you? Who's taking care of the farm? What you doing? I know you always hated hated living in town. And here you are playing a harp at the house of God. And so a man of normal life, of planting, of taking care of sheep and oxen, his life has now changed and he is centered on the tabernacle of God. Hallelujah. He is an unexpected worshiper in the house of God. But that's really not the focus. That's really not the message of the morning. The 11th verse, Wyatt, if I could have it again. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Everybody say Obed-Edom. Everybody say Obed-Edom the Gittite. A Gittite was someone who was raised in the city of Gath. The same town that Brother Goliath came from. Obed-Edom was a Philistine. He was not of the lineage of the Hebrews. His nation were sworn enemies of Israel. And they were the worshipers of a false god named 
Dagon. He was of the same heritage and the same culture and nationality as nine foot tall Goliath. His people constantly at conflict with Israel. Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the tabernacle, the ark of God, excuse me, stays in his house for three months. And in those three months, God blesses him with prosperity to the point that Obed-Edom, the Philistine, says, you're not going to leave me in this house while the ark goes somewhere else. But where it goes, I'm going to go. And Obed-Edom becomes this unexpected worshiper that I'm talking about today. Praise the Lord. There's some of you that are here this morning that perhaps it is beyond your imagination that God could ever have any interest in you, that you could ever be in the center of what God is doing. But could I challenge you today and say if God can include a Philistine in the worship of the nation of Israel where the generation piled a top generation is included where before they had been excluded I would say to you that you don't let yesterday's sin you don't let yesterday's failure you don't let yesterday's mistakes push you over into a corner where that you say God has no place for me and God will not bless me instead you need to take what you know about him what you have experienced of him and you need to latch hold to it with everything in you and say you're not going to escape me. Where you go, I'm going. What you do, I'm going to do. I'm going to participate in this thing. Hallelujah. And in so doing, you will bless your family and you'll bless the heritage that follows after you. Read it again. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Think about him as a Philistine in this behavior. As a matter of fact, the word Philistine in Israel is still used to speak of someone who is very irreligious. They are a Philistine. They don't have any godliness about their life. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunks, revilers, extortioners, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God you see the rule is that God's rule is one of opportunity and inclusion it's the reason that at our church we still quite often sing amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Obed-Edom, you don't have to stay in the farmhouse any longer. Follow your blessing. 
Follow your blessing. Somewhere along the line, Obed-Edom got close to David. And he said, Sir, I know I don't belong, but what can I do? How can I participate? I know I don't have the right genealogy, but is there a Sunday school class I can teach? Can I vacuum the church floors? What can I do to be of service? How can I help? I want to do something. Hallelujah. Obed-Edom surprised by grace and opportunity. The unexpected has come his way. Something he had never imagined, never thought possible has entered his life and he didn't take that opportunity for granted and he didn't ignore it. But he laid hold to it. He left behind his Dagon. He left behind any neighbors who might also have been Philistines. He had no interest in moving back to Gath. There's one thing he wanted to do. If I can be a porter in God's house and if I can play that harp that's basically a bass guitar, if I can play that in the house of God, hallelujah, that's what I want to do. An unexpected worshiper. The growth and future of your church in many ways will come from unexpected worshipers. Some will come from people who have no spirit-filled background and know nothing about the power of the Holy Ghost. And some of their old acquaintances at a liturgical church will look at them and say, What's going on? Others will come from addiction and promiscuity and whoredoms, dishonesty. They'll come from lives that have nothing about them to anticipate that they would ever be a worshiper. That's the reason you don't exclude anybody who works alongside you. You don't exclude any neighbors. You don't exclude any of your family, no matter how deep in sin they may be. Because a year from now, they may be part of the praise team. A year from now, they may be teaching a Sunday school class. A year from now, they may be assisting, greeting people as they come in the door as an unexpected worshiper. Shelly's coming, let's stand. Reach over and take the hand of somebody beside you. And I'd like for us just to kind of open up the soil of our souls. And I'd like for this little thought that I've shared with you today, I'd like for you to let it just soak in like a, like a gentle rain. Would you do that? Just pray and pray for each other. God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. Thank you for their lives. I thank you for what's going on in their lives. I pray that you will help them to perceive the blessing of God that is theirs. Let them lay hold. If they've not entered fully into what it is to be a worshiper and a servant of God, let this be a day of transforming change and of deep commitment. Where that no longer to be a spectator or observer, 
They want to be an integral part of what's happening in your work and at your house. Shaky Kalabaho Shanda Ramaha. Let the Holy Ghost work in you this morning. Yes, yes, yes. Holy Ghost is working across the body. That's it. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Thank you for your help and your mercy. Thank you for the touch of God. Oh, Jesus, I worship you this morning. Jesus, shaki la bohosatai. Tiramonomo kunda bohosatai. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. God, we come as unexpected worshipers today. We come, oh God, with an unexpected level of commitment. Hallelujah, with a deeper dimension of service. God, with a willingness and a hunger, not just to have experienced, but a longing to be an ongoing part of the work of God. Thank you, Jesus.